Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books in New York City History, a podcast series presented by the Gotham Center for New York City History for the New Books Network. My name is Taisha Maddox, and today we'll, we'll be speaking with Dr. Bruce D. Haynes about his book, Down the Upstaircase, Three Generations of a Harlem Family, which he co-authored with Saima Solovich. Bruce Haynes is a professor of sociology at the University of California, Davis, and a senior fellow in the Urban Ethnography Project Yale University. His other books include Red Lines, Black Spaces, The Politics of Race and Space in a Black Middle Class Suburb, The Soul of Judaism, Jews of African Descent in America, which won the 2019 Albert Rabatow Book Prize for the Best Book in Africana Religions, and numerous articles. His research areas include racial and ethnic relations and urban communities. Good afternoon, Bruce. And thank you so much for being with us today to talk about this important work. Thank I'd you like much. to start. I like to start by asking you to give us a brief overview into the work and explain what initially led you um, to write, to work on this project, and to write this book. Well, um, I guess I would give two key reasons. Um, the first has to do with teaching. Um, I teach sociology and I teach intro to sociology and sociologists often talk about trying to connect um, individual agency to um, social structures and, and um, you know, to connect personal issues to political issues. And we always talk about this, but often in our research, we tend to either do qualitative work or quantitative work and, and often the kinds of data we collect makes it very difficult to make those kinds of connections. And um, the second thing I wanted to do in the book, so that was the first reason. It was driven by, by kind of wanting to do what we say we do as sociologists. And, but the second reason um, stems more from the way in which I feel people process what it means um, to be a successful African-American in the United States. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, I live in a college town. Um, I live in what my, my neighbors would consider to be a probably integrated neighborhood in the sense that it's diverse. We, they're, they're Asians, they're, they're Latinos, they're, um, but in terms of race, you're really talking about a few black people. You're really talking about few domestic Latinos, right? Um, and you're, you're talking about um, the way in which my life looks kind of masks the reality of society. So my neighbors look at me and they think, wow, everything's working great. I have an uh, uh, integrated neighborhood. I have a professor who lives next door to me. He teaches at the university. Uh, America's working fine. And I felt that the reality of that story um, was very different. And that in a sense, I, I was successful despite many of the obstacles that I faced. And I wanted to capture what that meant for my life, but not just for my life, for the people in some ways that I think that um, I left behind in the neighborhood that I came from. Um, so I wanted to capture their struggles. I wanted to capture um, a kind of broader sense of what did it mean to uh, be black in America and, and to be successful. And to do that meant really overcoming an awful lot of racial obstacles that were invisible to most Americans. Um, they didn't see my life. They saw the 
outward manifestation of my life. And so the book was really about wanting to let people have a window into black struggles and, um, and how precarious passing on wealth is within black families. Um, Cause I see myself as living in a pretty privileged family in many respects. But when I compare myself to my white counterparts, then things don't add up. So we actually don't look so great when compared to our white counterparts, um, given the history of education and success my family has had, we have little to show for it in, in some ways. Thank you so much. That actually gets to a question that I'm gonna ask later, um, like a concluding question that I think uh, really encapsulates uh, like the story behind this book. But before we get to that, um, I wanted to ask you, um, in reading um, a synopsis of the book, you label the text a sociological memoir. Um, can you talk about the structure of the book and the way in which you organize the work and why you felt it was important to tell this story in this way? And can you also talk about, you mentioned your co-author, um, Saima Salovich, and the advantages you had of working with another author um, to tell this story. Okay. Um, first, I guess I should mention my co-author. Um, uh, I'm sorry, the, the name is Sima, Sima Salovich. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's Sima. <laughs> um, and um, she's my wife of 25 years. That's amazing. Congratulations. Ah, thank you. And... Um, she has a really good literary sense. I knew that. And I knew I wanted to reach a broader audience. And academics, we get trained to write in a particular way. And I knew that that was a disadvantage in some ways. And so, for instance, we don't use very emotional language as scholars. We, we tend to tone down emotional language. We tend to qualify everything. It looks like this, but it could be this. And, well, that doesn't make for a good story uh, if you're qualifying everything you're saying. So um, I needed someone who had a better understanding of, of, of literature. Um, and with that, she, having experienced my family and my household, right from the beginning when we first started working on the project, she envisioned the, the house itself as a character. And that was very much her envision about, um, you know, there was something that struck her um, that resonated with um, some classic works. Uh, and so she, she understood the way in which um, a good story unfolds. The second thing I wanted to do was in, in telling the story, I wanted to show the different layers of, of social life and to show how, despite the fact that individuals have choice, that we have choices that are limited. And often we, we uh, romanticize the idea of choice to think that people can do anything they want. And so what I really struggled to do was placing the, the characters in the book and the story that evolves in the book within a rich, layered social world where we could sort of see the different influences that were coming to bear on a particular individual and then see why certain choices maybe were made. And um, so it allows us to both have agency, but at the same time see a very um, politically structured environment that people have to operate with it. So those are, I think, the, the, two, the two big goals, uh, uh, sort of telling the story and capturing this, this link of, of agency and structure, which is this thing that we talk about in sociology, but we rarely have an opportunity to show how it works at all, how it all works out together. We tend to break it apart and show different pieces and uh, leave it to the audience to sort of put the pieces back together again and, and paint a, a more thick story of the world. Yeah, I think, I think the work um, 
really does that so seamlessly and it's it's a great read and it's it's easy to confuse it with a with a um uh, a narrative or like a work of fiction because or like a novel I should say because it it reads so effortlessly but then there's so many important themes and like poignant moments in Harlem history that immediately are like talked about through your family's history so I think it does an, it does an ex- excellent job of doing just that work that you mentioned. Thank you thank you no that that was certainly one of the goals of really wanting to capture I never wanted this to be a story about me. Mm-hmm. This was not a story about me. It was a story about my family. Yeah. And so originally I wanted to be a fly on the wall, <laughs> right? I wanted to talk about everything else and you really wouldn't know anything about me. Um, but as we wrote the book, um, all of my critics and, and people who gave us feedback kept saying, okay, that's great that you're telling this story, but what do you think about it? So increasingly, my narrative gets written into what I envisioned as more of a historical, not a fictionalized history, but, but, but as you say, history as I could tell it through the experiences of my family. Mm-hmm. And I was lucky to have um, individuals in my family and people who I'd met over the years who, who gave me a kind of... Um, Forrest Gump kind of uh, tracing through history. And, um, and I wanted to capture that. That was something I wanted to capture in the book as well, because both of my grandparents, uh, George Edmund Haynes and Elizabeth Ross Haynes, had each been trailblazers on their own. But the way we tell history, you know, only Du Bois exists uh, from that early days of, of our struggles. And so I wanted to capture some of the other characters that were part of the same world that Du Bois was part of um, that often gets missed in the retelling of, of say, the Harlem Renaissance. So we mm-hmm. talk about the, the performers, but we don't often talk about some of the visionaries who, who thought it was important to bring the arts to, to Black audiences. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And, and, and speaking about your grandfather, can you talk a little bit about your sources and like maybe some of the surprising or like even limiting issues that you found in, in doing and re- recovering this history and in doing this work? Well, I, I'm unique to the sense that when my step-grandmother passed away, uh, she was still living in Mount Vernon, the home that he was living in in the 1950s. And when I visited the home to collect his belongings, his study looked as if he was still working there. It was a little <laughs> study. Uh, the books were in the corner and a little tiny book. There was a clean desk and it looked like my grandfather was still working there. Um, as a historian, that's amazing. I'm like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. I'm a very historical sociologist as yeah. well. So suddenly I had this history and I got these boxes of stuff. And so I had boxes of stuff that I carried around through uh, graduate school and through my marriage. And that wound up in my garage here in uh, California. And I felt that I had to do something with this material. Uh, that was some of the other sort of things that came together in writing the book. Um, I wanted to capture my grandfather's legacy. I had material that by all reason should be in a museum, not in my uh, garage. And I felt so I could try to capture some of this material. And when I say material, I have um, binders of clippings that his wife had put together. uh, And I say step, step-grandmother because she was his second wife and his former secretary. And so there's a whole story behind that. <laughs> but she clearly um, wanted to salvage his, his story. So mm-hmm. I had um, what you'd call them um, books with clippings and pictures and um, uh, bills of what, where he was speaking at different churches and all of this material 
uh, along with um, letters, for instance, from the uh, Scottsboro Boys, because he was heading one of the committees to uh, defend the Scottsboro Boys. And this was one of the committees that were fighting with the, the communists who were trying to defend the Scottsboro Boys. And so I have a, a binder of letters that um, reflected this. And so I was able to draw an amazing amount of material that I had in my own possession. And then I um, scoured archives. I went to Columbia University. I, I went to Yale University, to the Beinecke. So I did go to a few uh, rare manuscript places. I was not able to get down south, which I know there's still stuff at Fisk and probably at Dillon that I've yet to, to um, mine. Um, but in the process, I learned so much about him and his career. Um, I learned, for instance, that Du Bois had mentored him. I did not know that. Um, I didn't know he met Du Bois uh, because he was um, a high school senior at Fisk High School, which is where Du Bois had gone. And in his return, my grandfather got to be his uh, escort through the school. And as a result, uh, he ended up mentoring him and encouraging him to not go into the church, but to go into social science. And so um, that was very surprising. I learned about my grandmother running for assembly in, in Harlem in the middle of the 1930s. I had no clue that she was a, a, an early uh, politician, an early uh, female politician at that, in a, at a time when women rarely were involved in politics. Um, I learned that um, the book that I that sat on the shelf in my household when I was a child, Unsung Heroes, had been written, in fact, from my father by my grandmother and was published by Du Bois and was, in fact, the first book written for African-American children. And um, so there was this rich history and legacy that that connected to Du Bois, that connected to Black history. And I also feel fortunate that I was able to have so much knowledge about my history. And so many African-American families, I feel, don't have a history that they know. And to be able to document our history, I thought was important for people to understand that um, Black folks have always done the same things that other folks have done in terms of trying to be successful and trying to have mobility and trying to pass on good values to their kids. Um, but the challenges before them have been so overwhelming that um, it seems each generation we keep starting from scratch. Um, and that's where I get the title of the book, uh, this notion of uh, climbing the economic stairs, uh, making it in some ways, but literally being one step from falling down those stairs economically. And that's what um, I feel my, fa my family has experienced over the years of um, making it, but making it against the odds and, and not making it, making it with near as much material resources as one might have thought they would have. Oh, thank you so much. That's actually a question I was going to ask you about the title of the, the book and its meaning. Can you, can you explain a little bit more about sure. that? So, so the notion, you know, we talk about riding up the escalator to success and we talk about, you know, stairways to heaven and, you know, so it's a very good thing going up the staircase, it seems, <laughs> ultimately. Um, but this notion that we were one step from losing it all, that um, whether it was times in my life where, for instance, I tell the story of um, a gentleman who I worked in, uh, my, who my mentor placed me in his research office at, when I, before I went to graduate school. And my experiences with this gentleman was um, they didn't believe that I was the person who I said I was, literally. And so I had told this person that I attended Dwight School and uh, the Dwight School had a school in New Jersey called the Dwight Englewood School. And apparently this person's son had gone to that school. 
So he asked his son if he knew me. Of course, his son said, no, he did not. And so this person concluded that I was a fraud and then went to my boss and tried to sort of get me fired. And this was an early lesson to me in recognizing that on the road to success, there were times that people kind of stepped out of the, 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 the shadows and attacked me and tr or, tried to, or tried to undermine me or bring me down for no reason. Like I don't even know the people. And, um, and this is a great example. This was a gentleman who owned a research shop, a survey research shop. And my mentor, Jay Schulman, placed me in the survey research shop to learn survey research. But he didn't want to teach me the sophisticated aspects of survey research, you know, um, cleaning the data, uh, coding the data. He wanted me to work the telephones like his high school students were doing. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I don't need experience working the telephones, doing yeah. cold calls on telephones. I'm trying to learn how to do data analysis. Well, he didn't like my uppity attitude. And apparently that's where we kind of parted company. So he concluded that I was so somehow not really um, the prep school kid that I had uh, professed to be. And he set out to bring me down. Lucky for me, my mentor, in, in telling me this story, um, asked me one question. He asked, where did I go to school? And I told him where my school was. And he says, oh, thank you. And I asked him, why did he ask? And that's when he explained to me uh, what his friend had tried to do to undermine me. And this has happened to me in my career, oh, maybe three or four times, where I had an individual who decided that I don't think black people really deserve to be here. Mm -hmm. We're out of place and I need to correct the situation and put you back in place. And that means essentially removing you from that, that position of, of uh, uh, upward trajectory, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Right, because you're still a young person trying to trying to make it and, and go to school and, and develop a career, and and so um, it was a great lesson for me in the kinds of obstacles I would face later, and um, and in fact I I would face them later. You even talk about that um, in your early time at the Dwight School with one of your your teachers, uh, Mr. Myers or Myers. Myers. who also brings challenges to you. So I yes, Mr. Myers um, had a problem with me personally. I'm not really sure why, um, but I was the only black kid in the class. So it's hard to know is it because it's personal. <laughs> and, um, but he was our debating coach. And what was very interesting is I actually thought he was a wonderful teacher. He was a history teacher, he was a debating teacher, and his classes were actually quite intellectually provocative. But at the same time, I always found myself um, isolated in odd ways. So for instance, one time in history class when we were going over American history and we got to the part on slavery, he had me stand up while he was talking about slavery. I'm not quite sure what that was for, but it didn't really make me feel good in, in ninth grade or whenever it was. Um, and so there are there lots of incidents like that that, that eventually led to me um, slapping him in the middle of a basketball game. Uh, kind of a complicated story to retell here. Suffice <laughs> it to say, I thought I was gonna get expelled from school, um, but my parents defended me and the school defended me and my peers defended me. And that's one of the things that was quite interesting um, that um, I had so much support in the school because I had never gotten a fight with anybody and here I was slapping a teacher. So um, it, it, was a, it was an interesting um, experience. I also had experience with my headmaster being accused of being a drug dealer back in eighth grade because he found a note written by a white student who said, no, they wanted to sell drugs. And they said, don't tell Bruce. So the headmaster concluded that I was somehow a rival drug dealer. And therefore, I, and so uh, he grabs me and takes me into his office and starts going at me. And of course, 
look on my face is like, you're crazy. And eventually he stops and tells me about the little note. And of course I explained to him that he had it all wrong and he apologizes and, you know, yada, 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 life goes on. But, you know, these were kinds of interesting events that would occur uh, over the course of your childhood where, um, you know, for lack of a better term, Elijah Anderson uses the term uh, in, in his book, The Cosmopolitan Canopy. Uh, he says that um, when we're out in public spaces and um, there's a necessity to reestablish racial norms in a sense, place black people black back in their place, mm-hmm. he calls it a, a, a nigger moment. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you might say those are some of my nigger moments in, in terms of high school, where suddenly you know you are not like the other kids. Suddenly you realize that somehow your existence is quite different um, from the existence of your peers. You're made aware. <laughs> As is everybody else around. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So my headmaster came out and grabbed me by the collar and dragged me back in. All of my friends were like, oh, wow, look what happened. You know? And so mm-hmm. it seemed obviously I was in trouble. And that's how people would have interpreted it. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, this is the, uh, um, we didn't have a term back then, but uh, Eli has given us one that I think works. <laughs> <laughs> so I have, um, as a born and raised um, Harlemite, Harlemite um, I noticed Harlem takes center stage in this text. Um, what role would you say Harlem plays? And did you feel pressure in writing and telling this story and writing about Harlem, <sighs> writing about home? No, not pressure. Although you might say I went to great pains to want to get the story right. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt I had an obligation and a responsibility mm-hmm. to tell the story. Um, what really comes to mind are the, um, the working people who really made Harlem the community that I grew up in, who really gave it its vitality and its life. And somehow when we tell the story about Harlem, they're the people who remain invisible. So we remember the, um, the, the Langston Hughes of Harlem or the County Collins of Harlem. Um, but we don't remember the people who are serving them food every night. And so um, for me, capturing the stories of people, of the working people who um, kind of invested hopes in me in some ways, um, as they looked uh, at me being uh, escorted off to private school as a young person, uh, and as they saw their lives taking a different trajectory, I remember people saying to me, oh, you're going to do things, you're going to do, you know, there was this notion of hope for the community that I somehow was in, embodying that hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I felt a great responsibility to do justice to that struggle and to um, recenter the working class of Harlem as opposed to um, the ghettoized image that we talk about Harlem, which in that in some ways we see Harlem residents through that ghettoized image. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was a part of Harlem for sure, um, but it wasn't what the community represented. Um, it was a far more complicated place, a far more diverse place. And um, I wanted to capture some of that diversity. Um, you know, even having a West Indian barber that my dad took me up to, to uh, 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 Ben Cortland Park South to watch the West Indians play cricket, which I had no clue what they were doing. <laughs> I had no clue what they were doing, but he'd hang out and he'd be talking to his buddy. And the next thing I know, I'd be playing soccer with some West Indian kids that I'd meet on the side. And I got exposed to things I didn't even know were particularly cultural until I became a sociologist and looked back and said, oh, wow, look at, look at the diversity of worlds that I got to experience. Um, mm-hmm. But that's not the Harlem we talk about. Um, yeah. In fact, I imagine in your own work, you find a bit of invisibility of the early West Indian community 
in a way in which um, they were played such a huge role in early Harlem. Um, and we don't talk about it as much as maybe we should. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we emphasize the great migration and we talk about Garvey, but we forget it wasn't just Garvey running around Harlem. Uh, <laughs> exactly. In uh, Trinidadians and Antiguans and, mm -hmm. and bringing culture and food and, and in fact, new attitudes about being black. Mm -hmm. And I think that's to me what makes Harlem particularly unique. Mm -hmm. Because Harlem was the, uh, the lightning rod for the black diaspora in the early part of the century, I don't know if there is a better place that created a context for ideas and culture than Harlem. And so for me, um, it was that great diversity that I wanted to capture that um, is so often overlooked when we ghettoize the history of, of such a great community. You know, we talk about the, the African diaspora today because we have a, a new wave of, of African immigrants coming into the U.S., but we forgot that that's been taking place for the past hundred years, transforming yeah. the way in which black folks, um, how we see ourselves. Um, I remember the first time I started hearing soca music played on, in, in, uh, um, on the radio, on AM radio in New York back in the 1980s. And this was before the West Indian Parade was even a thing. Mm -hmm. And this is when you saw the beginning of a, a cultural transformation. Uh, WBLS started playing reggae. They had never played reggae before. Reggae was played only on the white rock stations. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so you had a new international transformation of how uh, the diaspora started to see itself. And, mm -hmm. and Harlem was the center of that, that transformation. And so I think I'm... Uh, lucky to have been um, born and bred in it. Yeah, so actually um, the West Indian Labor Day Parade actually started in Harlem and, and it, it's, it was a precursor to these, um, or it came after these uh, ballrooms, West Indian Day like carnival ballrooms that they would have in the ballrooms of Harlem. So Harlem is the birthplace of this like Caribbean community. I remember attending one of those with my brother down awesome. 7th Avenue or Lenox Avenue because it was mm -hmm. right down in Harlem. And, you know, you could get a, a, a Black Liberation flag or you could get yeah. a, <laughs> an Afro pick with a, with a fist on it. Yeah. <laughs> all sorts of vendors out. And um, that was Black New York to me. Um, yeah. and, and you're right. It had always been there. It just, uh, it just got bigger. Yeah, yeah. So I think one thing that's interesting and in that you bring up is this idea of Harlem as a ghetto. And in the story you talk about, and I think you dispel this by looking at all these different characters in the novel, I mean, in the book, um, who represent what Harlem was. And you, you make mention that, yes, there were Harlem to the outside world was seen as the ghetto or it was seen as bad, especially in the 90s. Um, but to Harlem residents, um, Harlemites, they, they knew that all of Harlem wasn't bad. There were some areas that were bad, but they didn't see all of Harlem that way. And I think your story does a really great job of telling that history and like individualizing and humanizing these people um, of the community in, in such an amazing way. And one of the characters you bring up is of course your mother, Daisy. And she is quite a significant character. <laughs> but I was wondering, what is the significance of your mother and her importance on outward, outwardly like appearances and name brands and upkeep and fancy hair, juxtaposed to another character that looms like importantly in the text of the house, right? And letting the house deteriorate um, and her refusing like her refusal to let anyone into that space. Whereas on the outside, she was so polished and so, so concerned with the outside appearances, but then the home itself was in a state of disarray. Well, I think the, the home reflects their marriage. Mm -hmm. And I think um, 
And so what I tried to capture, you know, when I'm a child in the 60s and early 70s, you know, there's a, a nanny who comes and, you know, she cleans the house regularly and, you know, the place smells of pledge and it's swept regularly. Um, but as we move into the 70s, as my parents start to age, <laughs> as the economy continues to tank and inflation is, is a major problem, um, the economics get tight, I think, mm -hmm. but my parents are trying to in some ways shield me from that. Mm -hmm. And so uh, my world, immediate world, doesn't change so much in terms of the clothes I'm wearing or the toys I got. Uh, but, um, but the house itself started to pay a toll. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think it was a combination of, of a struggle that the house became a site of struggle between my parents' marriage, uh, you know, my father would say, you know, Daisy, you're spending too much money. And, and she would, uh, you know, uh, go on strike, so to speak. And, and it seems as if the house was a sort of consequence of that. And so she stopped doing the kinds of maintenance and cleaning. And my father had a very uh, ancient notion of saving money. And so that meant you just don't spend it. Uh, if something breaks, you maybe don't fix it. You just live with it as it's broken. And so there was a lot of um, deterioration that took place um, and expenses that might have been, you know, been a lot that dad chose to avoid. Um, so for instance, he patched a roof a million times and the, the roof kept leaking regularly and then he'd go up and patch it again. And uh, that was great. But by the time he was 78, um, the last time I remember him going up on the roof, I was visiting the home and, and, I was dumbfounded that he was going to try to lift this 50 pound tub of tar up to the roof. And I said, well, how do you, and so the roof, let's <laughs> try to picture this. It's a uh, fireman's ladder, right? A straight fireman's mm -hmm. ladder that goes up to a trap door that opens up onto the roof. And so he used to jerry rig a big rope so he could tie it to the top rung and he'd stay at the bottom and he'd pull the thing up to the top and somehow he had a way he could get it up there and manage this himself. And so I was terrified, of course, that he was going to eventually kill himself one day, you know, fixing something. Um, but that, that was the strategy. You know, you fix it yourself, you yeah. live with it broken. And of course, since they lived through the depression, you save everything. Mm -hmm. And so that meant the house became a museum in many respects. Mm -hmm. By the time my wife got to see it, um, uh, shelves were, for instance, in the kitchen no longer useful. And so um, there was a system of shopping bags in a part of, a, of the living room that, that housed all the food. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, everything has to be in plastic because you're still managing, dealing with roaches that are coming across from the neighbors because mm -hmm. uh, we are in New York. And so... Um, there was a kind of deterioration and the paint started peeling and dad no longer could uh, do the painting any longer. It's not like he's going to hire a painter. Either he yeah. did the painting or did not get painted. And so it was those kinds of things that contributed to the overall deterioration of the house. And, um, and so it was both, I think, psychological. Uh, and, um, and then my mother was kind of, I think a child in depression mm -hmm. and grew up in the era of glamour and the forties and, and, and the movie stars. And in some ways, when I look at the pictures, I think that, that she uh, emulated that era of, of um, feminine glamour uh, where you had to have your face on and you had to have your nails done and she would never leave the house without full makeup. And, um, but also she aspired to have the best of everything because she didn't have it when she was a child. Mm -hmm. um, so in many ways, my father, who was much more privileged when he was a child, grew up to be a kind of uh, um, Midas kind of a character, saving his money and counting it and making sure he had enough for the future. And whereas my mother was uh, looking to... Um, have a good time, experience life, and, and get some of the good stuff before she passed. And so um, she would live extravagantly, and he'd live like a miser. 
And in <laughs> some ways, um, I ended up somewhere in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I'm sorry, I didn't hear the last part you said. Well, that means you have to pay your rent, but it also means you have to have a good time because, you know, who knows when you'll die. Yeah. <laughs> father, he was saving for a rainy day that just never, ever came. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the questions I had are your thoughts on gentrification in Harlem today and what it has become today. Um, because you talk about these community of Black people um, in the time that your parents owned the house in this early in this earlier period, and how the neighborhood gradually you bring us through the the decades and how the neighborhood gradually begins to change, and how there's a moment where it becomes really unsafe, um, and then the turnaround, right? But we don't get up, of course, to the present um, in the text. But I just wonder what your thoughts were on. Harlem and what it has become today and this idea of gentrification, the gentrification of Harlem. Oh, Harlem is, is unique in the sense that there's probably no better iconic uh, neighborhood name than Harlem. Mm -hmm. um, and as a consequence, um, it's drawn black people with money to the community, not just white people with money. Yeah. And so gentrification really means, um, how would I put it? It has more, it's more than just talking about white people moving into ghettoized spaces. Mm -hmm. We're talking about money people moving into ghettoized spaces. Mm -hmm. And so the consequence of that means that it transforms those spaces for the residents who are there regardless. So in other words, new, new, um, uh, um, businesses open up to cater to the new clients that are now living in the neighborhood, rents start going up, real estate values go up, taxes go up, and before long, the poor people who are there can no longer afford to stay. And so the consequences of black gentrification essentially is no different than white gentrification. The difference is we could still say that Harlem is black, nominally speaking. Um, but in, in, in fact, I guess um, you might say the Harlem of today is not the Harlem of yesterday. <laughs> that in fact, um, while it still has many of the old institutions and many of the people who have been there for generations, it's also been transformed by, by economics and, and racial uh, change. And so there are, you will see whites walking in my former neighborhood, walking dogs and, um, you know, uh, Fab Five Freddy lives in my uh, family's former home. Um, and so the, the class character of the neighborhood has changed. Um, the restaurants have changed. Um, and so, you know, Harlem is not the same. I wouldn't recognize Harlem that I grew up in. Um, but then again, I imagine Baldwin uh, in the 1980s wouldn't, wouldn't think that Harlem was the same as the 1940s either, that, that Harlem has always been um, undergoing change. In some ways, that's New York City. Uh, you know, the nature of the city is, is undergoing change. Yeah. Um, but I think the big challenge, though, is for, for the people is, is if public housing has to remain, rent control has to remain, uh, those are the things that keep working class people in their old neighborhoods. Yeah. So should we get rid of those kinds of things? Um, the rest of old Harlem will be gone too. Mm -hmm. um, so Harlem is different. A bit of the old is still very much there, um, but it's hanging on in part because uh, the laws have, have allowed poorer people to remain in Harlem. And in many other cities, uh, similar communities have been completely gentrified. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, again, that this story does such an excellent job of weaving together many of these themes and like all these poignant like points and moments or intervals of Harlem history um, with your family's history. Um, and talking about community and the Great Migration, white flight, class gentrification, um, you even bring up mental illness in the Black community and the crack, crack epidemic of the 1980s um, through your family's own story. 
What do you think was the most um, challenging part in telling that story and getting that story right? And then what was the most rewarding for you in writing this story? Well, uh, if you could see the cover of the book. um, Yes. This is my mom. And this is not me, actually. Everybody thinks it's me. (laughs) Not me. That is my oldest brother, George. And the picture's taken around 1953. Mm -hmm. Um. I could not have written this book without my older brother, George. Mm-hmm. George had a, he had a life that it's only through his story that I could really capture a full spectrum of Harlem. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is um, George came up, um, he was a gifted and talented child. And and as he hit his teenage years, he started showing signs of mental illness. It's the 1960s. Um, Families didn't really know how to deal with those kinds of issues then. And um, George ended up dropping out of college. Uh, He actually attended Fordham for a short time. Oh, awesome. An experimental college uh, stint there that had very little structure, lots of people doing drugs. It's the late 60s. And um, George ended up uh, heading to the Nation of Islam, getting married, uh, having his mental illness still get worse, uh, breaking the marriage, and eventually um, becoming a hustler in, in the, on the streets of Harlem as he's in his 30s and early 40s. And um, then by time, let's see, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, by the time he's in his early 40s, his mental illness is really starting to uh, take over his life. And so through the 1980s and 90s, while I'm in college um, and my early years of my career, he was going in and out of uh, city hospitals for mental health care. And um, me, along with my parents, I had an awful lot of interactions with the New York City hospital system, uh, the state hospital system, as, as my brother um, went through the revolving door system of mental health care. So I got to learn the hard way about that. Um, my mother, of course, was a social worker. So she was actually working with similar kinds of patients within the, the community mental health center that she was working in. And so now we jump ahead to um, the, ninth, you know, the 2000s and I'm trying to write this book and my brother George is in a hospital. Um, well, actually not a hospital yet. He will become in a hospital, but, but he is in a rehab environment mm-hmm. um, and managing his adult life and, and kind of having um, reached a stable place in his emotional life. He and I start talking more and more about family and history and, and his past and and so I asked him, hey, what do you think about, you know, telling this story about some of the things you've been telling me about? And he was willing to do that. And so for two years, he and I spoke virtually every day as I interviewed him and re-interviewed him and had him tell me in repeated context the stories of his life. And part of the reason I wanted repeated context is precisely because the history of his mental illness, some of his memories were a bit fuzzy. Yeah. So what was awesome was I was able to juxtapose the memories of my experiences of similar events back to the timelines that he was telling me, and then we'd share stories. And yeah. so we, in a sense, we constructed our family's uh, history together. Mm-hmm. And so for instance, there were things about the end of my father's life I did not know that George was there because he was the one taking care of my father every day for for the last year of his life. And so um, there were all of these kind of, uh, what's the word I want to say, hidden stories about my father, about their relationship, about about religion and how how the conversations that the two of them had had that I I didn't even know that they had had. or us revisiting things from our childhood that I remembered one way and he'd say, well, no, actually this is what was happening because he was older and he could remember. 
And so there was a lot of our ability to reconstruct the story. And, but really, George's willingness to expose the challenges of his life, to expose um, the mental illness and, and the drug rehab issues that he's gone through, um, really was him telling me this was a, an opportunity for him to make an impact and help somebody else through that story. And I think he actually, uh, it was a very positive event, I think, for him when the book came out and um, we had some success with the book. And it meant for him that um, these stories, which many, in many ways were tragic, could now be used as a vehicle for helping other black families. And so that was something I think we both really uh, got out of writing the book. And so I'm very grateful to him for being willing to, to reveal his life, because mostly it's not my life that's revealed, it's mostly his life that's revealed. Yeah. Yeah, he's definitely a, a major character um, in the text. So not to give away the ending of the text, but in the last lines of the book, you state, this book is a tribute to that family, which was never as carefree as the image we fashioned for the world, never as secure in our futures, each generation walking a tightrope, one misstep from freefall. And I think this perfectly encapsulates many Black um, middle class or even working class families um, in the U.S., especially now um, during this recession that we're going through and in the wake of the devastation brought on by the COVID-19 virus. Um, and to bring it to the back to the beginning of the story, you start with a story of your, grand, your great-grandparents, Maddie and Louis Haynes in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. And you said that they owned property only a few years after slavery. And you argued that this helped to bring su the success of their son, George, your grandfather, starting, quote, the seed of our family's success was planted on this land. And so in, in asking you all of that, um, and which would also eventually lead to your own success. So in asking you all of that, what is the significance of the brownstone on Covent Avenue to your family's success? and home ownership and land ownership um, in general to building black wealth in this um, It's the key to wealth. <laughs> and I say that um, you have to own something, whether that be land or uh, um, stock interests, but it's about ownership and being able to um, grow the resources within the family across generations. Mm -hmm. And the history of segregation essentially has meant that black people buy houses, invest in places that become ghettoized, their values don't accrue, and they're not able to pass wealth on to their children. Mm -hmm. um, I juxtapose that with uh, white working families that got access to uh, the Levitt towns of America and bought homes for $10,000 that 30 years later were worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then yeah. that wealth was passed on generationally. So even there where a working class struggled very much like a black working class, that white working class has a lot to show for at the end of the, at the, end of the game. And they can yeah. pass that on to their kids. Mm -hmm. Whereas we have nothing at the end of the game. We have mm -hmm. segregation and, and usually are not able to pass wealth on. Mm -hmm. So even at, the, at, a, at a working class level, I, I, I see white working families that have amassed homes that their work histories are no better than the work histories of black working people, but yet they still have something to show for it. Yeah. So it's not the lack of drug use. It's not the lack of alcohol. It's not the, it, it's about, did they get to buy that property or not in a place that protected that wealth? Yeah. And, and so we romanticize so much about the values and, and this is what's causing wealth. But I have to say, I see, white working families that don't have those values that still accrue wealth. Mm -hmm. 
And so I think there's a, there's a disconnect in the way we um, want to blame black families for the circumstances in which they find themselves as opposed to addressing the, the societal um, structural issues that hinder black mobility. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think you bring up in the early sections of the book, you definitely bring up this idea um, and explain it really in a really poignant um, and important way um, that everyone should get it and read. <laughs> um, two more questions, final questions for you. Um, how do you think your family would feel about this book? That was the hardest part about writing the book. Yeah. Uh, as I say in the book, my family was... Uh, very private. Um, mm -hmm. You did not expose family secrets. You didn't talk about stuff on the outside. Um, and my mother had this very um, public image that I think she wanted to uphold. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't have written the story while they were still alive. Um, But I think I wanted to write the story because I guess I felt it was important. And I thought that um, more important than maintaining a facade of bourgeois respectability was helping real black folks in the struggle. And I think yeah. uh, at the end of the day, my mother will still appreciate that uh, as, as, a, as something that would be worth exposing. She would forgive you. <laughs> and then finally, what do you want readers to take away from this, uh, this book? I want readers to see the um, possibilities for Black families. And I think what I try to show is that given a fair chance, um, things for many Black families would have been very, very different. And I try to show that struggle through my own family. Um, and I think it's a, it's a call for us during, particularly during this time period to, um, become reacquainted with each other's stories. Uh, we live in a highly segregated society, both by class and by race. And, um, we no longer really know each other's stories. Um, one of the uh, things that moved me most when I wrote the book, uh, I have a friend of mine who's a, a Jewish gentleman, a retired mathematician, uh, and he came up to me after reading the book, and he said, you know, I thought we really had a hard time, but you know, your people really had it harder than we did. And to me, what that was, was uh, cutting through some of the ways in which we want to um, we want to minimize the black struggle by talking about other folks' struggle. And of course, the Irish have struggled, the Poles have struggled, the Jews have struggled, and, and the Armenians have struggled, but none of them have struggled in the way that Africans have struggled. And to understand the difference, for me, is, is the profound thing that we need to understand to address issues of white supremacy. And until we kind of, kind of reconcile that, um, we'll still be blaming the victim. Yeah. I think, and also to add to that, um, not, not just have struggled, but continue to struggle. And even when you're in moments or places of uh, mobility, right? Like as we see with you in the places that you are or in, in this amazing prep school that you're in, you're still facing these challenges, like you're, and you're still questioned about your place there. Even when you've attained those heights, you're still not, you're not seen as belonging to that space. And so essentially the same struggle that, that is performed sort of at one level is still performed as you move up the ladder. Yeah. In a sense, mm -hmm. it's, it's no different. The only thing that's different, it's lonelier. Yeah, yeah. and. It's like this Jay-Z lyric where he's like, OJ, you still black <laughs> at the end of the day, no matter how many accomplishments you have at the end of the day, you're still black. <laughs> and the threat that those accomplishments can be undermined 
by yeah. asserting that you're black is the mm-hmm. that that always remains. Mm-hmm. That that blackness in and of itself uh, delegitimates you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us today um, and for talking about this amazing work um, that I hope to use in the classroom someday. Um, And I also hope that everyone gets a chance to read. Thank you again, um, Dr. Haynes, for joining us. Thanks so much for for thinking the book was worthy of joining you. Oh, absolutely. It tells an amazing story on um, New York City and Harlem history that definitely belongs in this canon for the Gotham Center. So thank you again. Thank you.